you know it. Uh, it was sung before by other people, but you probably know it as Elvis Presley's last number one. Can anybody hear that song in your head right now as I say it? Suspicious Minds. Anybody hear it in your head? Can you? At least you don't hear that. You don't hear that song. All right, so you want me to sing it for you and then Elvis kind of, no? Okay, all right, so... Um, so the line goes like this. Um, he heard the song. He just had to record it, though his manager hated it and didn't want him to. But we can't go on together with suspicious minds. And we can't build our dreams. on. Do you all not know Elvis? You know, Elvis was a pretty famous guy. What's the deal here? So Elvis was singing this song, and it was written by a guy who, while he loved his wife, he was still very much drawn to his high school sweetheart, Okay. She was now married to somebody else, and his wife knew about his draw to his, and for some reason, that was a little bit of an obstacle to their marriage. Can you imagine? Anyway, so as they were trying to have a relationship, she, she kept being very suspicious of the things he did, and he's like, what's wrong with you? Why do you have a suspicious mind? And I guess the fact that he really liked his old girlfriend didn't seem to hit him as something. But anyway, Elvis really liked the song, and he sang it, and that should kindly, kind of be the uh, the thought in the background, the soundtrack to this chapter, because something really weird happens here. Somebody takes something totally wrong, not the way it was intended. This never happens today, but uh, when somebody takes something not as it's intended and they get offended. Have you heard of a story like this before? This is all foreign to you, isn't it? This never happens. But anyway, so here's how the story goes. After this, after this is Mephibosheth. He's pointing back to chapter 9. And the main word of chapter 9 is chesed, uh, gracious, loving, kindness, and compassion. Uh, and so David showed chesed to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth loved it because he was able to eat at the king's table the rest of his life because of it. Well, David is on a roll. And in chapter 10, he wants to show loving kindness to a foreigner. But the foreigner doesn't take it well. I don't know if you've ever shown compassion to someone and they've not taken it well before, but that's what this chapter is about. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. King of the, the king of the Ammonites was Nahash. Saul had overtaken the Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 11, made them subject to Israel. But David, when he became king, and even before then, he was real good friends with Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And so he died, and his son, Hanun, reigned in his place. Uh, David was fond of the Ammonites. He was fond of Nahash. And so he said, I will deal loyally, is what my version says. I will show Hesed, Hesed, just like I did with Mephibosheth, with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. I'll show him kindness because he showed me kindness. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, sent his servants, okay? And David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites. But the princes, princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you really think, because David has sent these comforters to you, he's honoring your father? Isn't his real motive to spy out the land and overthrow it? So Hanun, taking the interpretation of his servants rather than David's real motive, he took David's servants, shaved off half the beard, and most scholars say it was like one, either the right or left side. They shaved off half their beard, 
cut their garments off in the middle, something very humiliating, something very shameful at, at, their, uh, at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told to David, he sent someone to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed, humiliated, walking back in humiliation. The king said, you go stay in Jericho until your beards have grown back and then you can return to Jerusalem. Weird, weird thing. But what the Ammonites know is that this was rebellion and this was war. This kind of humiliation to a king who is over you means war. And so they started hiring mercenaries. You notice in verse 6, the Ammonites saw they became a stench to David. How can you not when you just did what you just did? The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maka with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he, I, I expect, and you should expect, he consulted God, do I go? And God says yes, and he mounts up his, his armor, and he goes and he whoops them all, right? That's how the story's supposed to go, but that's not how it goes. When David heard about it, he sent Joab and a host of his mighty men, and the Ammonites came out, and they drew up a battle array against at the entrance of the gate of their city. So out comes Joab with his people. They're confronted by the Ammonites, but back behind them suddenly the Syrians appear. So now Joab, the, king, the, the, the king's uh, general, has the Ammonites in front of their city, in front of him, and he's got the Syrians back behind him. He's surrounded. When Joab saw the battle was set against him both in front and in the back, he chose some of the best men of Israel, and he decided he was going to take the Syrians the rest of his men he put under the charge of Abishai's brother, and he had them face the Ammonites. He said something simple. If the Syrians are too strong for me, you come help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come help you. And then he says this wonderful thing. It's a beautiful statement of faith that's rare from the mouth of Joab. He says, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people, the cities of our God, and may the Lord do whatever seems good to him. He didn't try to predict what God was wanting. He didn't try to manipulate God. He just said, God will do what God will do. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they had no trouble. Joab was fine against the Syrians. The Abishai, his brother, was fine against the Ammonites, and they whipped him. But the Syrians regathered, and they decided we're going to fight him anyway in another city, right? We're going to fight them in uh, uh, the city of Helam in verse 16. This time, David hears about this, and David himself comes, and he whips them all. And that's the end of the story. It's kind of strange because, I want to go back to chapter 8 for a second. These also the king David, this is chapter 8, we're in chapter 10, so this was already... Notice the king had already defeated all these people. It says in verse 12, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites. He's already summarized this war back in chapter 8. Philistines, Amalek, spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. There's another one. These battles have already been fought, but for some reason, the Bible writer wants to go back and pick up this story and zero in closely on the action for some weird reason. And so here we are, close up in this battle, and you wonder, as this chapter uh, ends, you're like, what's the purpose of this chapter? I thought about that several times. One thing is this, uh, it gets winter time, and they can't continue this fight against the Ammonites. The Syrians are gone, but the Ammonites, 
They're going to come back again, but this is wintertime. In the spring, when it's time to fight again, as chapter 11 opens up, the stage is set for one of the worst experiences in Israelite history as David does not go to war, stays at home, walks on his palace roof, and what does he see? So we're setting up that awful scene of the next chapter. That's one of the reasons, but I'm going to say this. There is a lesson to be learned from this. There is, um, there is a, f- a bit of foreshadowing in this chapter, and then there is an interesting f- uh, prophecy. So we're going to cover those three things and lessons yours. First of all is this. The Ammonites were using this act of David as an excuse, really, to revolt and do their own thing. David is offering consolation, but they're interpreting it, interpreting it as espionage. Has anyone ever attributed to you suspicious motives for something you did that were as far from reality as you can imagine? You did something or you said something, and they completely take it wrong. Have you ever had that happen? This can happen with text. This can happen with letters because you don't see the tone and you don't see the facial languages, the facial language you're using. Or, or maybe you've done something like this, or maybe somebody's done something for you and you attribute to them a lesser motive than what they really acted in. I know you're above that and no one here can imagine doing that on Facebook or any other platform, right? Maybe you had a bad day and things are just piled up and somebody does something and you just decide, I'm going to be taking offense at this. Or maybe you just distrust them because you've had some experiences in the past and anything they do is interpreted through a lens of suspicion, right? We're all susceptible to this. Sarcasm sometimes can be something fun, but sometimes sarcasm is like cookies with arsenic in it. It's just got that little bit of kick uh, for you. It's, all, it's, it's not always easy to tell what a person means by it. And sometimes, sometimes it's completely up to you to decide and interpret what they meant. So what do you do? We can often struggle with suspicious minds. I'll give you two things to help you with a suspicious mind. If you're just one of these negative people, you just have a negative bent and no matter what is done you automatically jump to a negative interpretation i know people like this so i know i'm not missing the mark completely i know there are people like this so what do you do about it two things i think from scripture that will help you number one from matthew 18 i know this is crazy and i know this is way too simple and i know i'm being way too simple-minded to say this go and ask them drop the mic go and ask if you're not sure what they meant go and ask now, I don't nobody nobody does Matthew 18 very often here's why because we don't like confrontation we equate confrontation with contention or contentiousness the Bible does say contend for the faith. It doesn't say be contentious for the faith. There's something totally different there, right? So if you are a person who likes confrontation, I think you're a little creepy to me. Nobody should like it. But everybody should be comfortable engaging in it. So you go to a person and say, what did you mean by this? Straight to the horse's mouth, as we say, right? Right? 
And, and I, I'm telling you, Jesus seems to say in Matthew 18, when something like this happens, if you'll just go ask them, instead of talking to 80 people uh, what they think it meant or what they think their motives were, instead of doing that, just go straight to them. Jesus, I think, is telling us a majority of the time, a vast majority of the time, that step will do the trick. Ask them. Listen, there's a lot of things we can choose whether we're going to be offended or not. Ask them if you should be. Ask them what they meant. Put the beat on them. Second suggestion, if you have any doubt, give them the benefit of the doubt. Here's what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. It's read at every marriage, at every wedding that I've ever been to, even though it really wasn't uh, written for a wedding. It was written for a church fight. So we take a passage that was written for a church fight and we bring them to weddings. Isn't that beautiful? There's something so totally appropriate about that, isn't there? I mean, it's just totally appropriate. And so when you are having this, it says love says, it says love believes all things and hopes all things. Love chooses to interpret it positively rather than allowing your suspicious minds to kick into overdrive. We need this in marriages. What do you mean by that? Why'd you do it that way? Why did you lead the lid down? Well, I was because I hate your guts and I want you to be miserable. Maybe it's because I forgot. Maybe it's because I didn't think about it. It has nothing to do with an intentional effort to destroy your day. Maybe you should just give them the benefit of the doubt. That's kind of what hope and marriage and love does. We need this in churches. Don't be gullible when there's a pattern of it. Man, maybe that should be annoying, but maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe when a person keeps digging at you and all that stuff, you can, and, and all of a sudden you say, listen, this, I, I'm being really susceptible to being gullible if I do this right. But if it's not clear and you're really not sure you should be offended or not, choose not to be. Choose not to be. So that's kind of my, uh, that's our devotional for tonight, right? That's what you do for suspicious minds. Here's the foreshadowing in the text. Every time up to now, David consults God about battle. God gives David the victory, it says that. And David goes and he fights it. But suddenly something weird happens in this chapter where David decides, eh, I'll send somebody else. That doesn't seem like a big deal. I mean, he's the man in power, but he starts acting like the kings of all the nations. I'm going to sit here in my posh room, and I'm going to send other people to do the job. So that in the next chapter, he does this, and it leads to disaster. He's starting to act like all the other kings. It's just a little bit of a hint. Maybe he's getting too big for his britches. And finally, there's just a a little bit of prophecy, I want to say, some foreshadowing. So, like on the screen, did you hear this one? Tell me if you've heard this one. There was this king who wanted to show grace to his subjects. He wanted to love them. And, and, and so he sent his son to show the love of the king. And the people wouldn't accept the son and, in fact, treated him shamefully, pulled out his beard and took off his clothes and gambled for them and left him outside of town to die. Have you heard this story? 
Has anybody heard this story? Does it sound familiar to you? It's an interesting thing, but you know what that king does? He doesn't march and get those people and kill them. He lets them take the son and kill the son. And then he does this amazing role reversal, taking, letting the creation kill the creator, and then he flips the entire thing on its back, right? And he brings that creator back to life in the, within creation. And he, through the very actions of hatred and violence of the creation, he, through that act, saves all of creation. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Have you heard it? You're about to gather around the table again and celebrate that story again. I don't know that you can take this chapter and say that's what it's intended for, but I do think that, that we're taught in the New Testament how to see types of Jesus everywhere and types of the story of God, and I think you see it in this particular chapter. So you've got something tonight from this seemingly insignificant chapter. You've got a lesson for how to handle a suspicious mind. You've got a thought to ponder, was David getting too big for his britches and acting too much like a king of the nations instead of the king under God? Can we do the same thing? And then we've got an opportunity to see the gospel even in the Old Testament story of a king who loved us enough to save us, not when things were good with us, but when we were his enemy and against him. 2 Samuel chapter 10, strange chapter. But that is the truth, that is the lesson for tonight, and I'm saying to you, if there's anyone here who's been part of that creation and killed the son, that's everybody, by the way, every one of us has a role in killing the son. But some of us have allowed the son to save us through that very same act. Some have not. Some of you are still in the crowd saying, crucify him even today. And if this is a good time for you and you've decided I need to switch sides and I need to be on the, on the Lord's side and you're willing to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ and be immersed in the waters of baptism, we have yet another opportunity to allow that to happen. This can be the night where you choose to change sides. It's a good evening for it. And I, I tell you what, if you'll do it, we'll eat hearty tonight in celebration. I'm just saying, I think it's a good idea. This is a good time for somebody to make that decision as we stand and as we sing.